bitch. Zack City. Bitch. Well, hi, Sylvester's. It has been such a long time since I've sat down for a gab, but here I am. I am in the middle of a long project that has been taking me forever, and I simply can't bear to write another coherent word this week. So I'm going to be word vomiting at you for like 30 minutes, I'd say. So get a drink, get a snack, let's hang out. I am at a five-star hotel. I just had a massage. Just kidding, psych. I am sitting on my bed waiting for my fake tan to develop, and I have noticed that my dog has licked off a part of the tan on my leg. So now I am going to look like a shark, which is great. What updates do I have for you? I got a haircut, which I thought was going to elicit a huge reaction from everybody on social media, but it turns out that no one cared. And I was so surprised as to why nobody cared until I was FaceTiming with one of my friends and she let me know that it is not that much of a change and it was not the uh, move that I thought it was going to be. So apparently my hair just looks the same, which is perfect, but this is a big deal for me. I've had bangs since I was 12 11 12 years old and i never thought i would change but here i am i've got a tiktok boy middle part it is quite adventurous for me i have to say i have been thinking about dyeing my hair but i have had bad experiences in the past so i will not be doing that and instead i will be enjoying the curtains that i now have on my forehead in other updates i ordered a telfar bag which is so quirky of me If you don't know what a Telfar bag is, look it up. There's a lot of hype. It is a bag made in New York. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm bad at describing fashion, but it's a very cool black tote bag. So I got the biggest size so that I can carry around my yoga mat and my laptop like an idiot. I'm very pleased to be receiving that for Christmas um, from myself because if you don't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Is that a RuPaul quote? I think so. I hate RuPaul, so I'm going to redact that statement. Anyway, I'm just rambling now, but I have a few things to talk about today. Some news headlines. I'm going to talk about Meghan Markle and Princess Diana and a few books that I've been reading and a song that I love. And then I thought I would read you an excerpt from the big project I've been working on, which is pretty much due in two weeks. Uh, It is another section of my memoir, And this part that I will be reading to you today is about the physical destruction of the past in Singapore. So I hope that you will find that interesting. So speaking of Singapore, one of the best things about living in an autocracy is that the local media is pretty much all state owned, meaning that it's very hard to get any reliable, hard hitting information from a media source. So I have been feeling fatigued by the New York Times and the New Yorker and every other Uh, Western publication because of the disaster projections that seem to be coming at me in every direction. And so I turned to the local Singaporean media to get some absolutely non-newsworthy headlines to kind of solve my brain, if you will. So I thought that I would read some of them to you. This is the hard-hitting journalism that is going on in Singapore right now. So endangered crane bobs and dances for photographers at Selatar Country Club to coos of happy bird and then there is a video of this really ugly big crane bopping around while three photographers call it a happy bird and say boogie really loudly um so i enjoyed that very very pertinent and important news item 
Stray dog caught lazing inside Philippines mall joins the mall security team. So a homeless dog is now guarding a mall. Great. Madonna trends online after people thought she died instead of Maradona, a case of mistaken identity for the non-footballing world. So good to know that Madonna is not dead. Food Panda delivery man in Bukit Panjang receives order to pick up at Haogang for $5. Then there's a lot of question marks. Um, those are two parts of Singapore that are pretty far apart. But given that the furthest distance you can travel in Singapore is like 40 minutes tops, I would not be considering this breaking news. But you know what? We don't make the news. We just read it. Singapore cat welfare volunteers find dead bunny in trash, give it proper funeral with flowers. Then there are pictures of the bunny corpse um, sitting with a bunch of flowers in a pink ribbon. So that was kind of scary. Man, 63, allegedly stole housemates' grocery vouchers and filed false police report to prevent suspicion. Bad move. Very ominous and scary. Low crime doesn't mean no crime, as they like to say in Singapore. Moving on, I have very complicated feelings about Meghan Markle, and I think that these complicated feelings have just been stirred by my recent viewing of the latest season of The Crown, which if you haven't seen, please go watch. I love a stiff upper lip drama. The emerging actress that they hired to play Diana is actually sensational. She got her accent perfectly. Her gestures are kind of scarily similar. I think the looks were a little bit off, but like the costuming and the acting was so good that it didn't even matter. But yes, highly recommend that. But that made me think of Megan because I feel like Megan and Diana operate in similar realms of existence in that they are both princesses that struggled against the establishment with obviously very different outcomes. So Diana was beloved and was basically the people's princess. And even when the media was rude to her or like she did something embarrassing, everybody still loved her because she was this enigmatic, charismatic, uh, very sympathetic character. She definitely knew how to spin the media in her favor. Meghan Markle doesn't seem to have that talent. And I do wonder, obviously, a part of this is probably due to some inherent racism of the British press, which is not known for being the most magnanimous entity in the world. But um, I think another part of it is purely that she's American and having an American in the royal family just feels wrong. I don't know how else to describe it, but I just think that a sunny American actress from L.A. does not belong roaming the halls of Buckingham Palace and greeting old people at the nursing home. I just feel like it's not the gig for her. I wonder if Meghan went into this marriage with like a different expectation of what being a princess is like, because... Being a princess, I mean, if you watch The Crown, which is super accurate, obviously, um, just kidding, there's a lot of debate around that. But if you watch The Crown, being a princess or being royal in particular, it doesn't seem very fun. It seems laden with responsibility and oppression and the inability to form a public thought about basically anything. So I don't think that an American actress would take very well to those kinds of constraints. And I mean, obviously... Megan did not because her and uh, Harry have exited out of the UK. Uh, but I also bring Megan to mind because I read her op-ed in the New York Times about her miscarriage, um, which is an awful, very, very sad thing to happen. My condolences to them should they be listening, which they are 100% not. 
Um, but I don't know. There's something about Megan that is very myopic to me, especially in this piece. It is not particularly well written. I have a feeling there was a ghostwriter involved, and I'm speaking that from the experience of ghostwriting myself. And I don't know. I felt like the word choice was very dramatic. Um, and I don't mean that in a way to like shame her for having feelings or shame her experience. I just felt like it was a little indulgent to an extent. And, you know, there are other things going on in the world, lots of very major pressing issues and crises. And this is obviously a very sad and timeless issue for everyone. But I wonder, like, to what extent is this a move to, like, reassert the Duke and Duchess as celebrities rather than former royals? Because I feel like that's the pivot, the next, like, logical step for them to be doing. Um, anyway, this is a load of nonsense. I have nothing against Meghan Markle. Obviously, she's beautiful. She is regal. I think she was a fine princess. Um but yeah, I think their transition out of the palace has been really abrupt and bizarre. And I really think they just want to like be rich and famous. And you know what? So do I. I really, I just cannot blame them for that. I read a very good piece about Diana in The New Yorker. It is basically about how her style and fashion choices kind of like rocked the world and had viral moments before social media and the internet were a thing. Um, so it's an interview with the designers of a sweater that she wore, which was very symbolic. It was a red sweater with a bunch of white sheep and one single black sheet in the center of the sweater. So uh, very emblematic of Diana's struggles. She was known to communicate messages through her clothing choices, um, which I am such a big fan of. But great read, really good historical information and interview with the designer who actually designed this sweatshirt and reprinted it. I will leave that linked below. Speaking of Lady Diana, I read a wonderful article in The Guardian about the enduring myth and allure of Diana and a kind of justification of why she will never die and how her legend will live on because it was memorialized in the British public at such an important time. Uh, so I'll read a little excerpt from that. From her first emergence in public, sun shining through her skirt, Diana was exploited. For money, for thrills, for laughs. She was not a saint or a rebel who needs our posthumous assistance. She was a young woman of scant personal resources who believed she was basking with dolphins when she was frowndering among sharks. But as a phenomenon, she was bigger than all of us, self-renewing as the seasons, always desired and never possessed. She was the white goddess evoked by Robert Graves, the slender being with the hook nose and startling blue eyes, the being he describes as a shapeshifter, a virgin but also a vixen, a hag, mermaid, and a weasel. She was Thomas Wyatt's white deer fleeing into the forest darkness. She was the creature painted and damned and young and fair, whom the poet Stevie Smith described. I think what impresses me most about Diana is not that I think she's an inherently sympathetic character. I think I'm just absolutely fascinated by the way she was able to kind of manipulate the media and the public opinion in her favor throughout her time in one of the most difficult positions that a young woman can find herself in with the British press. I mean, see Meghan Markle, who did not handle it so well. I'm just very captivated by people who are good at being famous. I mean, arguably it was easier when media was more of a monolith. I mean, now our attention is splintered in so many directions and so many people get to have a voice that um, one particularly loud voice can knock down an entire reputation. Um, but I just think that there's a certain knack and talent and prowess that goes into manipulating uh, an entire collective's opinion of you. 
So that's why I think Diana's a queen. And also, I think Diana was murdered. Uh, if you would like to hear more about that, please slide into my Instagram DMs. I am always happy to discuss the conspiracy that Diana was murdered. By the way, I don't think it was the queen. I think it was at my five, but I digress. The article in The Guardian that I mentioned is also linked below in case you wanted to read it, which you absolutely should. I love a long read. So if you're going on the train, this is a very accessible, but also intellectual deep dive into a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, we have to stand. So I wanted to briefly discuss the downfall of Men Repeller because I found that to be a particularly compelling uh, product of the great canceling of 2020. Uh, Leandra Medine, if you don't know, is the founder of Man Repeller. She is an influencer who is known for her quirky, kitschy style and also recently got lambasted for being pretty much class blind in terms of her writing. The website centered around pairing like extremely expensive pieces with like maybe some thrifted vintage designer items uh, in often like garish and ugly ways um, that were designed to subvert the male gaze. Uh, which is an idea that kind of became outdated. I mean, it started in 2010 and it continued for 10 years, which is pretty like long for an independent media conglomerate. Um, but I thought it was really sad to see Man Repeller go, actually. Leandra was canceled very publicly. She was called upon to step down as her role as CEO and founder, which she did. And she handed over the website to her team. I wrote for them very briefly in 2018 and both of the people that i worked with have since left man repeller and moved on to other things which i think is very emblematic uh their best writers kind of jumped ship i think around a year ago and one of my favorite writers and the editor that i worked with at man repeller Haley nauman has a, a podcast called maybe baby i mean it's a podcast and a newsletter um but she discussed her time at man repeller and expressed uh kind of her growing frustration with being one pigeonholed into having to write about fashion, two being restrained by advertising uh, whims and desires creatively, and also uh, personal frustration with Leandra Medine herself for refusing to grow and take criticism. Uh, this feedback about the class blindness has been building for a couple of years, and it all kind of came to a head. Uh, and what's most troubling about it is that it seems to have been signaled internally many times before this whole thing kind of blew up. And a bunch of former interns came forward and said they experienced a bunch of mildly disturbing behavior surrounding racism and disordered eating and just kind of a general toxic workplace environment. It was also full of nepotism. A lot of the writers at Man Repeller were trust fund babies or billionaire babies. And I mean, are we surprised at this point? I don't know why we're feigning outrage and horror when we realize that the people who control the public narrative and sell us things have a vested interest in doing so because they are protecting their own status and place in society. So I don't think that it is a big shock that Man Repeller was not uh, this utopia that it presented itself to be. I think we all need to, you know, learn to look past glossy marketing and buzzwords and uh, kind of amazing ideas of these collaborative workplaces because let's be real you are working for someone else you are making money for them it doesn't get more glamorous than that even if it's a fashion website but I actually thought that it was really sad that Man Repeller went down the way that it did Leandra stepped back and gave the website to her team to kind of take over and remake it in a more 
uh, quote unquote equitable way, kind of diversifying the website a little bit. And I thought that some of the content was pretty good. And I don't think that it got a fair shake. It didn't really get the opportunity that it needed to expand because Medine closed the publication, I think a month or two after the rebrand, they dropped the man and just became Repeller. Um, but some chatter that I've heard, some goss, some insider scoops, is that there was a deal on the table for someone else to invest in Man Repeller and become the majority shareholder. But Leandra did not want to step down as the CEO or give up any of her shares in the company. So instead of continuing the publication and letting her team keep their jobs, she chose to shut the whole shebang down, which is interesting. And it is hearsay. So don't quote me on that. But um, I'm really sad to see Man Repeller go. I thought that for a time, it was a place for really clever and inventive, thoughtful nonfiction writing on the internet that was not coming from a journal or a press. Uh, definitely light years above the buzzfeeds of the world. So RIP Repeller, you are gone and you will be forgotten, but not by me for now. Switching gears again, I would like to play you a sample of a song that I am completely obsessed with. I am getting back into my bubblegum pop shit. I am renowned for having bad music taste. Whatever. Your guilty pleasures are my genuine musical interests. Okay, I've accepted it. I've recently become a big fan of Little Mix. They are filling the hole that Fifth Harmony left in my life. I am very involved in their drama that's going on right now with one of their members potentially leaving. I love it. But anywho... Um, speaking of bubblegum pop, I found a song that I listened to, I think nine years ago. So if you remember when the, uh, Rebecca Black Friday video blew up, it was, um, a creation by a studio that like kept churning out these awful teenage songs. So there was like Thanksgiving, which, oh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. It's like, it's Thanksgiving. We, 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 you know, the one. Okay. Um, but I found uh, one of the songs that I actually really liked and I was listening to it today and I was like, oh, this song kind of bangs. Like, it's kind of a good song. Like, if Little Mix recorded this and toned down the autotune a little bit, I would listen to it every day. Um, so here is a little snippet of that song. It is called Dancing to the Rhythm with Me and it is by Lexi St. George, someone who has never been heard from again. There is a music video on YouTube if you would like to watch it. It's amazing. And she looks like Emma Watson. Wow, the absolute undisputed talent of Lexi St. George. We are such big fans of her. Um, so a book that I wanted to recommend for everyone is The Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson, who writes for The New Yorker and also teaches at the Columbia MFA program. I went on a date with a guy who took a class with her. He was rude, but he said that the class was pretty good. So that's a positive review for her. Here's another positive review for her. I love this book. I'm like halfway through so far. And I think that empathy really is something that is important to address and examine in this year, especially when we are um, contending with so many different uh, levels of grief and loss uh, that we need to either comfort ourselves or comfort others for. Um, and I wanted to read a little excerpt for you. 
Empathy isn't just something that happens to us, a meteor shower of synapses frying across the brain. It's also a choice we make to pay attention, to extend ourselves. It's made of exertion, that doughtier cousin of impulse. Sometimes we care for another because we know we should, or because it's asked for, but this doesn't make our caring hollow. The act of choosing simply means we've committed ourselves to a set of behaviors greater than the sum of our individual inclinations. I will listen to his sadness, even when I'm deep in my own, to say, going through the motions, this isn't reduction so much as acknowledgement of effort, the labor, the motions, the dance of getting inside another person's state of heart or mind. This confession of effort chafes against the notion that empathy should always rise unbidden, that genuine means the same thing as unwilled, that intentionality is the enemy of love. But I believe in intention and I believe in work. I believe in waking up in the middle of the night and packing our bags and leaving our worst selves for our better ones. So something I really like about this excerpt and this book in general is that it kind of addresses the notion of like agape, that like selfless love, that idea of uh, a true love only being one that is not self-interested. And I really do wonder if that is like an achievable idea or a possible feeling because I really can't think of a circumstance in which I could extend love and not have it be in some way self-interested and i do agree with her assertion that just because something is self-interested doesn't mean that it's not genuine um but for more musings on this and musings on like pain and pleasure and grief and relief please pick up this book it is really good and the writing is very well researched very thorough and re really artful as well so i highly recommend and to wrap up this episode of the Salve podcast, I will be reading to you from my memoir. So here it is. When I was born in the mid-90s, Singapore was deep in the throes of a recession. With social inequity cured as the Kampong villages were destroyed and their inhabitants were rehomed to public housing, the aesthetics of the land-starved nation were closely scrutinized. First, they painted the new public housing developments in Tui pastels. Then they took an axe to the past. The words newer and better were frequently employed by the People's Action Party, the sole party in Singapore that has maintained power since independence, when plans to clear sites of historical significance for apartments and corporate headquarters were met with dissent. Buildings granted heritage status in Singapore are the low-hanging fruit, pristine shop houses, black and whites, and stately colonial buildings. These obvious wonders look pretty on a postcard or in a state-commissioned watercolor series, but they do not reveal anything real about the country. Externally, the designated survivors are a historical testament. Inside, they are gutted and hollow. In school, I learned that the expatriate children of yesteryear received letters from Father Christmas from a dedicated writing room in the general post office called the Santa Claus Main Office. I pictured elves stuffing envelopes beneath the barrel-vaulted coffered ceilings, the bells on their hats jingling louder as paper traffic built up on the eve. The post office is a colonial building. A neoclassical beauty with fluted Doric colonnades that is now a posh hotel largely unvisited by locals. A small plaque in front of the revolving doors brusquely notes its legacy. The tourists use the plaque as a tripod for family photos. When I was younger, at Christmas time, I dragged my heels on the brightly polished floors of the hotel for lunch behind my parents. I knew there had been magic in the old post office, but the wizardry was waxed and shined into oblivion, leaving faint trails of a place that once mattered. An unremarkable shop house on the East Coast was sealed for illegally farming bird's nest, a rare and expensive delicacy. Inside, the building succumbed to the humidity and the heat, and it decayed beyond repair. It was allowed to rot on purpose, so the government could remove its heritage status and tear it down for commercial use. They erase the flaws, the blemishes of the past. They knock off useless blocks with dental dexterity. 
Singaporean poet Bowie Kim Chang elegized the molting city she no longer recognizes. That every building must have a purpose and function in Singapore is a product of land scarcity and the quest to do over. Freedom from colonial rule, the right to assert an international power by way of physical perfection. Every shop house that was gutted and repurposed to serve nitrogen coal brews or slabs of avocado toast presented a curtain up moment. The enchantment of a marionette show is spoiled by the glimpse of a stray finger pulling strings. Careful, that one's on block is a warning I heard a lot in my early years. At first, I thought on block was an accolade granted to all of my favorite buildings, the old stadium, the old national library, a shop house with a kopi tiam that served ice chrysanthemum tea, which I loved. The shop house was across the street from the hair salon where I had been getting my hair cut by Lynn, a local woman and probably the only Singaporean I have an enduring relationship with since I was born. In a post-labor haze when I was otherwise occupied in the NICU with jaundice, my mother wandered in from the hospital and found Lynn with a pair of scissors and a pep talk. I entered the world with too much fluff, so when I was no longer yellow, I was shuttled to Lynn for a trim. No one else has ever cut my hair. In my ninth year, I got a trim every six weeks and adjourned to the Kopitiam for iced tea with my father. On several occasions this year, my father delivered the warning that I mistook for an accolade. That one's on block to my favorite building. I was so pleased with the collective reckoning of my shop house's ramshackle beauty and specific importance to me. On an especially sweltering day in the dry season, I dragged my small sweat-logged body to the Kopitiam ahead of my father and saw orange blockades and a festering concrete pit. Rusted electrical wires grew out of the wreckage like weeds, and workers in hard hats pounded away at the bones of a building. I looked around, bewildered and irritated that muscle memory had steered me wrong. Did I go the wrong way? I asked my father, shouting over the jackhammer. No, the Kopitiam was on block. I told you a hundred times. I looked at the rubble of my beloved shop house and wanted to sip through its contents. Had the city planners double-checked to make sure the auntie who brewed tea wasn't in the back boiling water when the wrecking ball struck? What happened to the vats that held liquid treasure? Was there something I could salvage to savor this place? I wanted to excavate a weed wire and take it home. My father grabbed my hand and yanked me towards the 7-Eleven. You can get bottled tea. It's sweeter, he said. The bottled tea was definitely sweeter, and the sterile buildings that replaced my personal hallmarks were certainly newer and better, but what was the opportunity cost of progress in my Singapore? A sense of home, permanence, and belonging. The foundation of my Singapore was unsteady. My parents didn't belong here. The local children would not befriend me. My terrapins always died. No matter how many times I clung to a building I loved, a friend I had made, or my preference for local cuisine, there was always an alternative that arose and replaced the choice I had made. I learned what en bloc meant. A singular entity, a corporation, or more usually the government, forced the sale of a plot of land. Whomever and whatever was there would have to budge. There was no civilian due process for preservation. Matters of the state were not up for discussion. I have searched the archives in the National Library for a picture of this place. It doesn't exist. There is no evidence. Maybe I dreamed it. En bloc became a theme of life instead of a series of events. There was always the fear that this or that place I adored was on thin ice. I wondered that other things would go en bloc too. Would Lynn disappear one day? Would I arrive from my regular trim and be told that she wasn't there, had never been there, didn't exist at all? At the onset, I resisted the en bloc fever. I threw tantrums. I flailed and screamed and beat the ground with my fists when I was told that a building I loved no longer stood. This morphed into a hatred of all change. I wouldn't allow my parents to throw away broken trinkets or buy new furniture. I wanted our house to remain untouched by the quicksand in the outside world, which swallowed the stakes I planted. My parents thought this odd behavior was a sweet affectation, a quirk I had developed to show that I was really quite sentimental. But there was nothing kitschy about this rage. It was a metaphysical peeling of flesh. The rage dissolved my tendons and left my bones unconnected. How could I explain the turmoil that en bloc created to my parents? Their home was not my Singapore. On yearly pilgrimages to Ireland, they found home exactly as they left it. I could scarcely blink before my world changed shape.
When I learned what en bloc meant and who inflicts it most often, the government, the rage dissipated. Earlier, I called my learned response to life in Singapore a violent indifference. This is the force that replaced the rage which dissolved the tendons and disconnected the bones. It was a concession to the architects of constructed reality. The government will take care of you. I heard this from taxi drivers, doctors, nurses, Lynn the hairdresser, and the prime minister on television when Singapore stopped SARS in its tracks. This was decreed to soothe and warn as though the People's Action Party were a god that was unable to be questioned or chosen. I didn't have access to many locals, but I listened with reverence when I got the chance. They knew something about survival in the Lion City that my friends, parents, and teachers were unwilling to learn because Singapore wasn't internal for them. They parked their beliefs wherever they came from, whereas I had 500 miles of mangrove and reclaimed land to dream on. Rarely did I cast my net and pay attention to what happened overseas. What was the point? My friends came and went, but we stayed. Leaving was not discussed as a near-future scenario. Only when our time was up, because economic opportunity ran dry, or my grandparents were on the brink of life, would we leave. The motionless motion held me in a straitjacket. There was a crisis brewing, for sure, the violent indifference, and yet I felt safe, calm, and connected to Singapore. I did not agree that the chrysanthemum tea shop house was inessential to the national fabric, but ultimately I deferred to the better judgment of the government. A two-story mini-mall replaced my beloved building. It held a pharmacy, a hawker center, and the first entrance that accepted public insurance in the catchment area. The government knew better. It would take care of me. All right, that's it for me. My dog has invaded the room and is sitting on my bed, licking my tan off my hand. So that's it. Sorry the excerpt didn't make a whole lot of sense. It is part of a larger work, and it is the only part that I could share with you today. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed this, and stay tuned because I will be seeing you in two weeks with a nice essay for you to read. Bye.